0: Well, again, we're in Ezekiel chapter three. We began a study a few weeks ago in the book of Ezekiel, the long book of Ezekiel, and we are working our way through it. Um, if you look there in your notes, there is an outline. I won't go over the outline every uh, week, but just notice that's kind of a basic five-part outline. So as of now, we're still in part one of the outline, and we're going to get a little bit into part two tonight because we're going to go past chapter 3 and look at chapters 4 and 5. So chapters 1 through 3 deal with the call of the prophet Ezekiel to preach to uh, God's people who were in captivity uh, in the nation of Babylon. They were in captivity because of their rebellion against God. God allowed the Babylonians to come and overthrow uh, the the city of Jerusalem, to overthrow the, the military of Judah and take Thousands of Jews back with them to Babylon in captivity or in exile. And while they're in captivity, God raises up Ezekiel as a prophet to preach to them and give them some specific messages. We'll get more to that tonight because he has some specific messages for Jerusalem and Judah. And so we will see that. Here's a summary statement from Dr. Kendall Easley. From exile in Babylon, Ezekiel's stunning visions, we'll see some of that tonight, and startling symbolic acts, we'll see some of that tonight, were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom so they shall know that I am the Lord. And so that's the, the, the gist of what the book of Ezekiel is about. Now, We're going to go a little bit faster. We're going to take a kind of a larger chunk tonight. And so we may not cover every single verse in the end of chapter 3 and chapters 4 and chapters 5. So I highly recommend that at some point you get your notes. If you have some time near the end of this week, read through these chapters slowly and think about them. So you can see how they unfold verse by verse. But if you remember last week, we talked about... The, the blueprint of God's call to Ezekiel. We said that God got his attention, God gave Ezekiel a fresh vision of himself, God gave him his marching orders, and then God reassured him because uh, the Lord knew that it would be very difficult ministry because he was preaching to a stubborn people. And so he reassured Ezekiel that he was going to make him stubborn too. And he was going to give him the, the wherewithal to preach this message to People that did not want to hear it. And we talked about how God intervened in Ezekiel's life to call him. Well, tonight I want to talk more specifically about what that call was, what he was calling him to say, and what he was calling him to do. And to establish the context, I want to take you back to Ezekiel chapter 3. Look in verse 12. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 12. This is kind of where we left off last week. After God calls him and reassures him, He says, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures. Remember, he was allowed to see the spiritual realm, allowed to see these cherubim, these these, uh, angelic um, uh, figures. He said, It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake the spirit lifted me up and took me away and i went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit he says and the hand of the lord being strong upon me now why was he in bitterness why was he why was he why was the spirit heated because he was given a glimpse into how hard this ministry was going to be and it's almost like he's kind of reluctant at this point i don't know if i want to do that god it looks really really hard and so there's a bitterness there and it says, I came to the exiles in tel Aviv who were dwelling by the Kibar Canal. Again, there was a, the Kibar speaks of a series of canals that came from the Tigris-Euphrates rivers into Babylon, the city, and surrounding areas. They were dwelling by the Kibar Canal, and I sat there where they were dwelling. And I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. So this, this call to Ezekiel... Ezekiel giving his marching orders is so overwhelming to him that he just sits there seven days and doesn't do anything. I mean, he's just trying to process all that God has said to him and all that this means for his life. And then we're going to pick it up in verse 16 where it says, At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. So after seven days of Ezekiel, languishing under the weight of what God had told him to do, the Lord says, okay, Ezekiel, time to get going. And, and here he gives Ezekiel, the prophet, some specific callings, some, some, some specific things he wants him to be uh, about. So let's look at the two callings of Ezekiel. Number one, Ezekiel was called to be a watchman. Called to be a watchman. Now this uh, passage here in chapter 3 starting in verse 17 is not the only passage in Ezekiel that deals with the, the, the imagery of a watchman. We also see it in chapter 33 verses 1 through 6. So hold your place but just turn with me very quickly to Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. I want to show you this. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who to, who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the, of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But... If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any of them away, or one of them, any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So the image of the watchman in chapter 33 is very clear. A watchman was someone who stood on the walls surrounding the city in a defensive position, and they would be on the lookout for enemies. And if they saw a threat approaching, if they saw an enemy approaching, their job was to blow the shofar, blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, uh, so that the people would be ready to face the coming threat. And and that's what a watchman is all about. And, And chapter 33 is very clear. If a watchman doesn't do his job, the people are going to suffer defeat, and the watchman will suffer the consequences, because he didn't do his job. But if the watchman does his job, and the people don't listen to the watchman, then it's all on them. So that's the imagery of the watchman. And way back in chapter 3 of Ezekiel, he wants Ezekiel to know, I'm calling you specifically to be a watchman. And so I want to just walk through what this means. First of all, I want you to see the great privilege. The great privilege of being a watchman. Look what it says there in chapter 3, verse 16. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, which is a common uh, phrase that God uses for Ezekiel. Um, Son of man, that title was also used for Christ, one of uh, Christ's favorite self-designations. It spoke of his humanity. And he says here, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Now what does that entail? Look at the next phrase. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from, what's the word there? From who? From me. And so Ezekiel has this incredible privilege where God speaks to him first and then he speaks to the rest of the people. He gets to be the one that hears the word from God's mouth and then passes it on. So the idea of a watchman is the idea of great privilege. He gets to to stand between God and God's people and be the deliverer of God's message. Great privilege. But also there's great responsibility. Great responsibility. And as he explains this responsibility in verses 18 through 21, we see there are four scenarios that unfold for profit and people. So I want to just kind of quickly walk through these four scenarios. I want to make some application to all of us. In this room. The first scenario is this the unfaithful prophet is judged along with the wicked. So look what it says there in verse 18. If, this is hypothetical, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. So here's what he's saying. If you are unfaithful as a prophet, as a watchman, and I give you a word of warning and you don't pass it on, they're going to suffer my judgment, but you're going to be judged as well for your unfaithfulness. So the unfaithful prophets judge judged along with the wicked. You, uh, the blood I'm going to require at, at your hands, he says to Ezekiel. The second scenario is this. The faithful prophet's message goes unheeded. Look in verse 19. But if, there it is again, if, hypothetical. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So here's the idea. You warn the wicked. They don't listen. They suffer the consequences of that. But you have done what I've called you to do. Uh, you won't experience the consequences of being unfaithful. So the faithful prophet's message goes unheeded. That's another scenario that could Happen and and does happen in in various ways in the book of Ezekiel. Here's the third scenario for prophet and people. Those failing to persevere in righteousness are not warned by the prophet. Look what it says in verse 20. This is interesting. He says again, if, hypothetical, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin and... His righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. So this is the scenario of someone that that starts out well, that claims to be righteous, that claims to be a follower of God, but at some point they get off track and begin to veer in the wrong direction. And the Lord says, when my people begin to veer in the wrong direction, I want you to speak to them and warn them. And if you do that then you've done the right thing. You've done what I've called you to do. But if you don't warn those veering in the wrong direction and they stumble and they fall, they'll be judged, they'll experience consequences, and so will you, Ezekiel, because you were an unfaithful watchman. And there's a fourth scenario for prophet and people. The faithful prophet helps the righteous to finish well. Look what it says there in verse 21. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live. Because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. So here's what he's saying. Ezekiel, I'm calling you to be a watchman. And there are four different ways this could go. Now, the optimal is number four. This, this is the way God wants things to go. Ezekiel, I want you to warn the people. Be a faithful watchman. And I desire that the people respond to your warning Respond to your message and get right with me. So number four is what the Lord's looking for. It's what the Lord desires. He desires for people to hear his message and and, and not have to go through the consequences of, of not heeding God's words of warning and judgment. So four scenarios for prophet and People. But, but what's being communicated here? What is the Lord trying to say to Ezekiel? I think Warren Wearsby says it well. He writes, Personal responsibility is the key here. Both of the watchman and of the people. So Ezekiel has a responsibility to speak God's message faithfully, truthfully, plainly. The people have a responsibility to heed God's message. He writes... If the Jews, now, this is where it kind of comes back to us. If the Jews under the Old Covenant were held responsible for their actions, how much more responsible are believers today who have, listen to this, the complete Bible, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. So if responsibility, personal responsibility, is being communicated here in Ezekiel chapter 3 with this message God has for Ezekiel for the people then certainly that applies to us as well we have a message that's been given to us from the Lord and we have watchman like responsibility to share that message now you say pastor Wade are we really do we have that kind of weight on us where we are watchmen Responsible to share a message on behalf of God. Let me show you a couple passages to to kind of drive this point home. Uh, Hold your place, but turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. New Testament, verse 17. Paul's writing here to the church in Corinth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all God's people said, I'm telling you, it's good. It's good to know Jesus and be made brand new by Jesus. Aren't you glad of what Jesus does when you accept him as your personal Lord and Savior? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All this, this salvation, this newness of life, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, brought us into relationship with himself. And then... He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he saved us. He brought us to himself. Then he says, hey, listen. I want you to take this message to others so they can be reconciled too. He goes on to say, that is, verse 19, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, entrusting to us, entrusting to us, Personal responsibility entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Watch this. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you see there the, the, the weight of the watchman? Remember, the watchman had great privilege. Hit a message from God. We have a message from God. It's called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the watchman had this responsibility to actually share it with people so they could be ready to meet God one day. And we have that same responsibility. And here's what happens when we share this message, 2 Corinthians 5 says, God Himself meets us in that moment. And is at work in that moment where he is actually pleading through us to others to come to him. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So, here's what this means. If you want to be really close to God, share the good news. Because God will actually be in that process pleading through you for others to come to Jesus. So there's that idea there of the watchman. It's not an exact correlation, uh, but the the, the privilege and the responsibility are there. And and, and so this this responsibility speaks of personal evangelism. There's another place where a group of people are warned to, to be faithful to God's message to his people. And this speaks of... Pastors is speaking to to folks like me. So hold your way. I want to show you Hebrews chapter 13. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Paul writing to... Hebrew Christians writes, Obey your leaders, submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. And so what he's saying there is... is is. Uh, is follow your leaders that God raises up for you in the life of the local church. Make their their leadership a joy and not drudgery. But notice his reason there. Look what he says. These leaders have to give an account to God for how they watched over your souls. There's a responsibility there, a watchman-like responsibility. One day, I'm going to have to stand before God. And I'm going to have to give an account, was I faithful with his message to his people? And that's a big deal, right? That's a a weight that pastors live under and need to keep ever present in their hearts and in their lives. And so this idea of watchman-like responsibilities found in, in, in the life of every Christian who's called to be a witness, in the life of his spiritual leaders that are called to lead his um, church, but... Here's the takeaway. We want to be watchmen. We want to to let people know there's a way to flee from the wrath that is to come. There's a way to be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to a holy God. There's a way to know that you're going to heaven when you die. There's a way to experience personal transformation from the inside out. And and that way is Jesus. And he's the only way. And and that's the message that we have. And and I believe as Christians, as a church, we are responsible to proclaim it, to, to blow the shofar, if you will, and let people know that Jesus saves, right? Or let me say it like this. Our goal, I want you to write this down. Our goal should be to make the Emerald Coast, this region of Florida, to make the Emerald Coast the hardest place in the world to go to hell from. Let me say it again. Our goal should be to make the Emerald Coast... The hardest place in the world to go to hell from. Now, people have to make their own decisions with the message. We can't make people surrender their lives to Jesus. That's got to be their decision. But we can be faithful watchmen, can't we? And, and and proclaim this message. And if people go to hell, it's not because they haven't heard the gospel or seen the gospel lived out in faithful Christian lives and vibrant Christian churches. That should be our goal. So Ezekiel was called to be a watchman. And boy, there's some... There's some Convicting application, I think, for our lives. But back to Ezekiel three. There's a second calling I want you to see. We'll look at this quickly, and then we'll have our prayer time. Ezekiel was called to be a living parable. Ezekiel was called to be a living parable. I, I told you that he was he was called to be a prophet and a parable, a, a servant and a sign. Much of his prophetic ministry was symbolic. He would act out messages for the people to see. He was called to be a, a living parable. Over in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 6, listen to what the Bible says. He says, In their sight, the sight of God's people, you shall lift the baggage upon your shoulder, carry it out at dusk. We'll talk about this when we get to chapter 12. You shall cover your face that you may not see the land, for I've made you a sign for the house of Israel. So he says, Ezekiel, I've made you a sign. A lot of what I'm asking you to do is so that you can be a parable, a sign, a symbol of the message I'm trying to get across. And here's what's interesting. As we work our way through Ezekiel, there are not 1, not 2, not 5, not 6, not 7, not 8, not 9, not 10, not 11 but 12 action sermons where Ezekiel is actually called to act out the message. And there's some crazy stuff that God has him to do. You'll see some of that tonight. But the message that God is communicating through his symbolic actions becomes very, very clear and very, very uh, powerful. So what I want to do is I want to walk you through um, three of those parables uh, tonight. Uh, the, the first three action messages, if you will. And We'll see how he's called To be a living parable. First of all, we see at the end of chapter 3, the parable of devastating silence. The parable of devastating silence. Look what it says back in chapter 3, verse 22. And the hand of the Lord was upon me there. He said to me, Arise, go into the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I rose and went into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I'd seen by the Kibar Canal, and I, what, fell on my face. That's a kind of recurring theme. When God unveils His glory, you fall on your face. If God decided to manifest His glory, just partially, in the sanctuary tonight, we'd all be on our face. And he goes on to say, But the Spirit entered into me, set me on my feet. He spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house, and you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, he Who will hear, let him hear. He who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. This is the parable of devastating silence. So, here's what the Lord says Ezekiel, here's your first message. Go home and lock yourself in the house and have somebody tie you up as well. And just realize you don't be able to talk. I'm gonna make it so you can't physically talk. Until I'm ready to say something, then I'll allow you to talk. That's his first message. Go in the house and show everybody what it looks like to be bound up. Uh, the, 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 the idea that, that the prophet is not speaking right now. There's silence from God, silence from heaven. So, I mean, think about how, how unusual this would have been. You know, I, I came here in September of uh, 2018. And let's just say that I get here, church has voted on me, I have my first Sunday, and I say, for my first ser- sermon, I'm going home and locking myself in the house. Y'all have a good day. That'd be weird, right? That's what Ezekiel does. He goes and locks himself in the house, and he can't talk. His tongue is is sticking to his mouth. The parable of devastating silence. This is God's way of saying, because you haven't wanted to hear what I have to say, you're going to experience silence from me. I'm going to talk at, at, at some point, but right now it's silence from heaven, silence from God, which is a reflection of God's judgment. Now hold your place, but turn over to Amos. Hold your place. Turn to the book of Amos, another prophet. It's a minor prophet. Book of Amos. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos chapter 8. Let me show you what he says. And this is a message from Amos who was a country boy from the southern kingdom who was sent to the northern kingdom to preach to them. And in Amos chapter 8, look what it says in verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. So he's saying, because of your unfaithfulness, I'm going to send a famine on the land. What kind of famine? Look what it says. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water but of hearing the words of the Lord. You know what God's saying? God's saying, my judgment is going to be silence. You don't want to hear from me? Fine. I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to stop speaking. I'm going to stop revealing myself and my ways and my plans to you. silence from heaven. I like what the ESV Study Bible says about this verse in Amos. It says, Israel had rejected the words of the Lord from Amos, another prophet, so that they would go into exile, where there would be no word from the Lord at all. In its absence, they will find that the revelation from God has been their most precious possession. They shall not find it. listen to what it says. People who have repeatedly rejected God's words will suddenly be unable to find God's words at all. And God's Demonstrating that through Ezekiel going to lock himself in the house and causing his roof to or his tongue to stick to the roof of his mouth so that he cannot speak. God's saying, My silence is a act of judgment, devastating silence from God. And it's interesting, isn't it? That God speaks to his people here in the Ezekiel, he speaks to the, the 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 Jews in exile, and he raises up some other prophets as they as they are released from exile under the Persian rulers, and they come back to Jerusalem. They come back to Judah. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah and and Zechariah and Haggai are preaching and, and helping them to rebuild. But after that, a final prophet named Malachi speaks. But after that, there were four. Hundred years of silence. No prophet of God. No message of heaven. That's what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Silence. Silence. An act of judgment. But aren't you glad God decided to speak again? In the fullness of time, Galatians 4, God sent forth his son. But I want you to understand that when God decides to judge, one of the ways that he judges is through devastating silence. Now, how does that apply to us? 1 Timothy 3 talks about the last days. If you haven't read 1 Timothy 3 in a while, you need to read it because it's like a a, a very accurate description of our country. It really is. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible says that, that men will accumulate teachers who tell them what they want to hear. In fact, it uses the, the word teachers that tickle their ears. They, they, they'll, they'll find preachers and teachers that make them feel good but don't actually tell them the truth about things. And and, and Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy, that's going to be one of the signs of the last days. You're going to see more and more and more ear ticklers. And I believe one of the ways that God judges a nation is when he takes his hand off and says, You want ear ticklers? You can have ear ticklers. And you see less and less true preachers of the word of God, more and more ear ticklers. And before you know it, a nation has no word from God. And you think that can't happen in America? It's happening now. It's already happened in parts of America. In New England, New England used to be a hotbed of Christianity. The Great Awakening took place in New England. Jonathan Edwards preached in New England. I mean, there there were... Vibrant, fiery, evangelical gospel-preaching churches everywhere. God move with power. You go to New England now, you have a very hard time finding a gospel-preaching church. Now, if Southern Baptists are planting churches up there. Praise the Lord for that. And There's some, some neat things happening in New England now. Praise the Lord. But I'm telling you, when people say, we don't want to hear any more preachers, God will say, okay, find some ear ticklers and see how that goes for you. And over a few generations, what was once a vibrant Christian community becomes a community devoid of any gospel witness. And I believe this is one of the ways that God judges. The parable of devastating silence. So we should be careful saying, hey, give me an ear tickler, because God will say, okay, here he is. See how that goes for you. He locked Ezekiel in his house as his first sermon. Pretty interesting. Secondly, there's the parable of the catastrophic coming siege of Jerusalem. Look in chapter four. Chapter four, very quickly. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem. So get a big block, big piece of stone, big piece of brick. And draw a city on it. Someone's was like, get a giant Lego. Okay? Draw a city on it. Put siege works against it. Build a siege wall against it. And cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it. And plant battering rams against it all around. So this was a model that Ezekiel was supposed to make of a city under siege. So in ancient times, when a city which had a defensive wall around it was was attacked by another army if they could not if they could not get past the walls in their first attack they would build ramps of earth up to the top of the walls and they would then over Uh, overcome the city by going over the walls. That way they would bring battering rams to knock down the doors at the gates. They would would attack in in various ways. They would lay siege to the city. A lot of what they would do is they would just stop supplies from coming in. So the people who were in the walls became desperate because they didn't have enough food or water. And so this was the picture of a great siege. He says there, verse 3, so you're supposed to build this model of a city under siege. He says, and take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. So here was Ezekiel's second sermon. Build a a model of a city that's going through a dramatic siege and the the iron the iron skillet there i believe it speaks of 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 that blocks his view of the of the siege is a picture of hey jerusalem the great city is going to come under siege i've already let the Babylonians attack it there's going to be another attack in 586 bc where the temple will be destroyed that's coming there's going to be a great siege but i won't see it i'm going to allow it to happen that's what god's saying this iron skillet between Ezekiel's face and the siege. Then look in verse 4. It gets even crazier. All right, Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days. How many days are in a year? 365. This is over a year of Ezekiel laying on his side to get a message across this is his second sermon. Can you imagine being given those instructions? I had a lot of different classes in seminary. None of them talked about laying on your side as a message. Lay on your side. And he says, so shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you've completed it, you shall lay down a second time, but on your right side, bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I sign you, a day for each year. And there's a lot of discussion about the, the 390 and the the, uh, the, the, the 40 days, and what those um, numbers mean. Some believe he's counting forward from this message to how long God's judgment will last. Some believe he's counting backwards to the people's unfaithfulness and how long it has been lasting. There's debate on that, and we don't know for sure, but but he gives him these specific numbers to lay on his left side, then on his right side. Verse 7, You shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, You shall prophesy against the city, and behold, I will place cords upon you. Here we go again. He gets tied up again. So that you cannot turn from one side to the other, till you have completed the days of your siege. Again, he's acting out what was coming for Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be under great siege from Babylon. He goes on to say, Verse 9, take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them in a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food that you eat shall be uh, by weight 20 shekels a day. From day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen. From day to day you shall drink it. So this it way of saying your, your food and water will be limited. You shall eat it as a barley cake. Look at this baking it in their sight on human dung. So you make yourself little cakes of bread and you got to cook it on human excrement. How would you like to be the prophet Ezekiel? But keep reading. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. So it was a picture of the uncleanness they would experience when they are driven from, uh, from their homeland. Then I said... Oh, Lord God, behold, I've never defiled myself. Remember, Ezekiel came from a priestly family. He grew up as a priest. From my youth up till now, I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor was tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung. Whew. Good for Ezekiel, right? He gets to cook over cow dung instead of human dung. He says, On which you will prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety. They shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. You say, wait, this is all very dramatic. Why? Because the coming judgment, the coming siege on Jerusalem was going to be dramatic. And, and the people needed to be warned this, this was coming. And his job is to warn the people of this coming siege in Jerusalem. That's what chapter 4 is about. So he he goes through all these symbolic motions to communicate to the people how awful this would be. Now, if I'm a Jew in, in captivity, and I'm hearing news about my city, Jerusalem, where I lived, where I came from, and I hear this message that it's going to be destroyed, I would be very distraught. Would you not be distraught by that? Your hometown is going to be destroyed. The capital city is going to be destroyed. The city of God is going to be destroyed. And and what should their response have been? Get right with God, right? God, be merciful. Show your mercy. We'll come back to you, Lord. But by and large, that does not happen. They don't heed the gravity of this message, which leads to the third parable, the parable of destruction, chapter 5. The parable of destruction. Look in verse 1. You son of man, take a sharp sword. Use it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard. So he's saying cut your hair with a sword. <laughs> then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city. When the days of the siege are completed. The third part you shall take and strike with a sword all around the city. third part you shall scatter to the wind. And I will unsheathe the sword after them. So the hairs that he cuts represent the people of Jerusalem. And he's speaking of a, of a third uh, being being uh, taken into captivity, a third being killed uh, by the sword, and a third being uh, 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 burned in the fire in the midst of the attack. And so uh, it speaks of the, the judgment on God's people. He says, "...you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe." These are the hairs. "...and of these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire." And burn them in the fire. From there, fire will come out into all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. Look in verse five. This is Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has, here's the bottom line. She has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations. She was to be a light to all the nations saying, come worship the one true God. But she was more wicked than all the other nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you... Have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules. And have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. You're not even as moral as the nations around you, he's saying. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you. And I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. Because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I've never yet done. And the like of which I will never do again. I'm going to allow the city of Jerusalem to be completely destroyed, burned with fire, the temple destroyed, devastating, devastating destruction. Now you say, what's God's God's end message in all this? What's what's God driving at here in in sending such devastating judgment on the city of Jerusalem and the people of God, the, the Jews, Look what it says. Fast forward to verse 13. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. Now look at this next phrase. This is so critical in this chapter and in the entire book of Ezekiel. And they shall know that I am the Lord. Watch this. That I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Look there in your notes. God would devastate Jerusalem to remind His people and other nations that He is the sovereign Lord deserving of all worship. Let me say that again. God would devastate Jerusalem to remind His people and other nations, including, I would say, our nation, that He is the sovereign Lord deserving of all worship. Bottom line, God wanted His people to come back to Him. To recognize he's the one in authority. He's the one that is to be worshipped. He's the one that is to be praised. He's the one that is to be obeyed. He's the one that is to be followed. He wanted them to know, I am the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh, the divine name of God. I am the Lord. I want my people to remember, I am the Lord. And, And notice what it says there. I've spoken in my jealousy. God is jealous for for their worship because he's the only one that deserves glory and honor. This past week my wife was relaying to me a conversation she had with a with a, a lady and this 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 lady struggled with the concept that God desires all glory. She thought, "Why why does God make such a big deal about his name alone being glorified. Why has he made such a big deal about you worshiping him alone and not other gods? Why is God jealous? And his jealous here is not a, a green-eyed envy like we experience jealousy in our humanity. His jealousy here is a righteous desire that you and I give glory. Listen, to the only one who's worthy of glory. Because here's the deal. When you give God the glory, he deserves it. He's worth it. The only one worth it. But also, it's best for you. When God says, give me the glory that I deserve. Don't worship false gods. He's doing what's best for you. He's calling you to what's best for you. Because, when, listen, when you worship the one true God, all of a sudden, your priorities fall into place, don't they? And the rest of life begins to make sense because your priorities are rightly ordered. Most people that are struggling with life and going through difficult things find themselves there because their priorities are wrong. And many give lip service to following Jesus or worshiping God, but in reality, God is not at the top of their list. are other Priorities above God you know what those other priorities are? they're gods they're idols even good things placed above God are idols and God's saying don't put idols above me don't put false gods above me put nothing else above me I'm the only one worthy of glory and when you get to that place in your Christian life that's when life will begin to make sense Jesus said, it like this in Matthew 6 seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the other things will be added unto you. What you eat, where you live, what you wear, the things of life, they'll all fall into place when you put me first. And so, when God says, worship me alone, he's not on some kind of ego trip, he's the only one worthy of worship. I'm not worthy of worship. You're not worthy of worship. He's only worthy of worship. And when you worship the only one worthy of worship, it's going to be best for you. And when you worship something other than the one true God, the only one worthy, you're going to get in all kinds of trouble. Because that's not how you were designed to live. And so, Ezekiel is called to be a watchman, and he's called to be a living parable. And that's how his ministry begins. <laughs> Tied up, laying on his side, cooking over cow dung. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? Do you think God wanted to get his people's attention? Absolutely. And sometimes it takes dramatic movements of God to get our attention. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.